Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. This is The Breakfast Show, positively different radio in the morning and you're with the Double L team, Lyle and Lawson. Good to be on the show this morning, Lawson. Good to be starting another week. What are you thankful for at the beginning of this week? I'm thankful for grape juice. Okay. Yeah, because I love grape juice. Grape juice is good for you. It is healthy for you. Mm. It is. It has lots of positive benefits. And um, I have this amazing grape juice called Petriti. And last night I had a bunch of people over at my house and we watched a documentary about veganism and drank Petriti. So, yeah, good times. And all wore green t-shirts and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Went and protested. Talked about right climate, after. <laughs> climate change. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I had a great weekend. So, what was that? What was the movie you watched? Um, it's this new one called The Game Changers that was made by Arnold Schwarzenegger about like why everyone should be vegan and stuff. Is it a health-based one or an animal rights-based one? It's a bit of both. Okay. It's mostly health-based, uh-huh. especially from a sort- sports science perspective perspective Sport, yeah, yeah, as yeah. well as a health perspective um but then there is like a section about you know well one of the facts from the movie that they that they shared that by not eating meat you're saving up to a million liters of water a year yeah that's amazing from going into the ocean and turning into salt uh what well you don't the, the planet doesn't lose water oh yeah yeah it's yeah. just the balance of salt water versus fresh water exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's cool. So do you reckon that when back when you were an elite sportsman, you would have done better if you had been um, a vegan back then? I've got to be honest, it was interesting. When I came into like my the, the fittest I'd ever been, I got a new coach and I went completely off red meat, completely like I was only eating meat twice a week and I was eating way less eggs and I was eating more carbohydrates, which is what the movie actually prescribed. Which is so interesting, yeah, because the the idea of nutrition that we see a lot of people, you know, putting out is, oh, you need protein from animal products. Um, but no, it's like the my own personal experience, interestingly enough, before I even thought about being a vegetarian or a vegan, was cutting out a lot of meat helped me a lot. So, yeah, and it's going the same way for a, a lot of athletes in our world today, setting world records. So I don't mean to brag, but Avenus has been on this for the last 160 years <laughs> or thereabouts. This is a reminder, you're listening to the delayed broadcast here on Faith FM. If you would like to listen to the live show live and participate in the quiz and the prizes and all the other fun things that happen on Faith FM Breakfast Show, then simply download the Faith FM app available on Apple or Android platforms. And don't forget, in the New South Wales area, we are facing catastrophic fire conditions Mm. over the next couple of days. Be prepared.
Welcome back, guys. That was Chelsea Moon with Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing here on Faith FM. And we are about to have the blessing of a quiz where you can get your brain into gear for the day. So get ready to give us a call, 1-800-324-843, or get ready to text us on 0491-064-669. Lawson, what have you got for us? All right. This is a Who Am I quiz. Okay. Are you ready? This Go. is a person from the Bible, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um in Hosea 6, the Lord says that Judah and Ephraim are like I was because they broke the covenant. All the gears are turning, but he doesn't know. Well, I know. No, you don't. No, you don't. Ah, you're wrong. Yeah, uh, that doesn't quite fit the clue, but I know that's what it says. I'm going to look that up in just a moment. And no, you're not. Prove myself right. No, you're not, because, uh, like, that is fully wrong. I know it's fully wrong because it doesn't fit the... Anyway, whatever. Like, it fully does. I'll look it up for you. But, hey, if you know the answer, give us a call, 1-800-324-843, and you can win a prize completely for free. There you go. And in the next segment, Lawson's going to tell us what that prize is, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. I'm going to work that one out. Okay. <laughs> cool. Lawson, what have you got for Positively Different Radio? Positively Different News. Well, I have a number of stories here. Make but, us happy this morning. But I just got to say, like, last night after watching this documentary, I just got on, like, a YouTube binge of, like, videos about humans doing, you know, like, great sports achievements and stuff that are happening around the world. And, like, this just completely flew under my radar, even though I knew it happened. 
did you know that last month, like, Eliud Kipchoge ran a marathon in under two hours? Yes. It was, it was a very manufactured marathon, but nonetheless, it was a phenomenal achievement. It was insane. I was watching a documentary about it last night and how they had the pace car with the lasers out the back so they knew how fast they were going. And he had like five people and running in front of him, you know, to protect it for the, re- uh, the wind and the pace. But it was just it was Yeah, it was manufactured. Wild. And it was in perfect <laughs> conditions. It was on a perfect track. It was, yeah. you know, it wasn't running from... Uh, what was it, Olympia down to um, Athens or anything like that? Mm. Um, yeah, no, it was it was very manufactured, but as a human achievement, just phenomenal. Yeah, and I was just you know I was uh, I guess I was on you know the kind of hype of looking at sports nutrition science and like oh yeah because back in the day when they were trying to break what was the uh, the four minute mile yeah or something the four minute like mile and this guy 50s. ran the four minute mile for like an entire marathon just about. Yeah, so his pace was a 4.35, which is like, so that's 13 miles an hour. That's a sprinting. Oh, oh it's like sprinting he for sprinted, us. He sprinted for a marathon. A marathon, basically. That is a phenomenal, it that is, is a phenomenal wow. achievement by any standards. And yes, yeah, so I'm like, yeah, man, amazing things are happening in, in the, you know, especially as we've developed scientifically, you know, and our understanding of, 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 you know, sports science and nutrition has developed and training. It's like, man, crazy, amazing things happening around our world. And another thing that's happening that I thought was, was, uh, was really, really interesting. A 14 year old, uh, from the States has been awarded $25,000 for her invention that totally eliminates blind spots. While driving a car. Really? Yeah. What is it? Just like a camera? Yeah. So basically. She invented a camera? She invented a camera slash projector. Right. Yeah. Check this out, Lyle. So I'll show. has been around for a while. Projectors have been around for a while. Look. So basically, she's like set up this system that has like a camera pointing outwards and then projects an image onto like, you know, you have the two edges of like. pillar. Yeah, the door pillar that holds the the windscreen and the door together. It's just projecting the image that's like you know out like looking at. Uh, oh, that's actually very cool. Yeah, so I don't know that it's going to eliminate blind spots for people coming from behind, though. Mm-hmm. It eliminates blind spots for people that are hidden by the the pillar. Yeah. But you can imagine how adaptable this technology is, like if you continued to make because obviously this is a prototype that was made by a fourteen-year-old high schooler. I want one in my four-wheel drive. Yeah, for yeah, rock crawling. This is going to be amazing for rock crawling. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, uh, like I mean, wheel placement. I'm showing right lo- there. <laughs> yeah, you can just see the perfect 360. line. <laughs> That's amazing. Of course, this is probably inspired by the new technology that we have coming in the uh, F35s. Mm-hmm. At the moment, where they've created a helmet where you can see through the bottom of the floor and everything because of like cameras, yeah. and it's like this you kind see of wherever you look augmented reality mixture. She's basically done the extreme cheap version of that and just has put a camera on the outside of the car and put a like tiny projector on the inside of the car and projected the image from the outside of the car onto the door pillar so you can see three sixty degrees. <laughs> and so it. you could fully develop this and like put it all around the car. And I'll honestly like I would expect. It. Hopefully, she's like made a pattern for this or something. So, so, so you could potentially have a car that has no pillars, just 
all windows. Wherever yes. you look, you see just you just see what's outside. But technically, they do have pillars, so you have the structural. Because I'm just like, oh, I mean, cruise you... ships have had this like forever. You get one of those indoor cabins, and it has the big window on the indoor cabin, mm. uh, but it has a big window which is just just a projector with the camera that's um, on the outside of the ship, opposite where that cabin is. Mm. But yeah, it's now it's. It's a it's it's a thing. It's a thing that we're seeing. <laughs> it's a thing that we're yes. that we're seeing happening around the world. It's another another. For, sorry, it's going to change rock rolling. <laughs> it's going to change full driving forever. Yes. You're kidding. That's awesome. Hey, another cute story that I saw this morning. Um, this is coming out of a nursing home in England, basically. Um, one of the ninety-nine-year-old. Okay, okay, okay. But you think about it, right? Okay, you okay, think about right, it. Right, right, all right. Okay. right. You think about this. You would be able to see through your floor to look at where your wheel is. Mm-hmm. Now, only somebody who's done rock crawling and there's like 1.001% of people who actually know what I'm talking about right now. Yeah. But that 0.00% of people are going, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> okay, so you can see through your floor... To actually see exactly where your wheel is at all times. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. That's, that's very cool. That's I want it. That's so cool that we're just going to leave it being cool and not <laughs> spend our entire time talking about it and move on to something else. Uh, <laughs> which is a cute story coming out of an English care facility. About a lady, her name's Joyce Gardner. Back to rock rollers. She, she's she's ninety nine years old, and she is just awesome. And she, you know, she's about to turn one hundred, and she has this one great wish, and that's that she wanted to see penguins because she loves penguins. That's her favorite animal. She's never and seen I'm, a penguin. Who hasn't seen a penguin? I don't know, but I can just totally attest that penguins are the best animal ever. They're my favorite animal, and they're awesome. And this lady's like, I want to meet a penguin. She's from England. I don't know. Maybe she's never been to a zoo. Maybe they don't have penguins up there. Do they not have penguins up there? We, Yeah, well, they don't have penguins naturally. They, they got, might have them in the zoo. Hemis- are they a southern hemisphere thing? Well, like, yes, huh. right? Yeah, you grow up in the summer of the southern hemisphere, you just assume penguins. Everyone's penguins. Penguin. Get out of Phillip Island, penguins. Yeah, like they're just penguins. they're just everywhere. Go um, out, go out in the Donna Castro Channel down in Tassie, it's like, oh penguins. Oh penguins, there you go. But Sydney Harbour. <laughs> Peng- penguins. Yes. <laughs> Same. Um, the aquarium. But yeah, um this lady basically she had this wish and so the nursing home they rallied together and they made it happen. They got three penguins to come in, you know, under you know, with the there's uh, a zoo that was, you know, up the road in the town um and they brought in three little penguins and they just hung out with her all day and walked around and she got to hold them and hang out with them it's just the best that is seriously cool it just makes me so happy because i'm it's just a heartwarming oh, story i right love there. penguins so much and she is just like you know she has this quote here she's just, uh, yeah, like i'm just ecstatic they're such incredible animals and i just love them so much and they're just amazing and yeah, so shout out to the British Zoo for just being awesome. And and obviously, it wasn't just her. They took the penguins around to the whole nursing home and they got to hold them and feed them and hang out with them. Kind so, of yeah. Like, is it a bird? Is it a fish? Is it, a, is it an animal? It's everything. That's the thing. It can literally do everything. And it can also be cute at the same time. Like, it's got every ability that it needs. So, it can be an animal, a bird, or a fish? Yeah. It, and, it's just a critter. And it's cute. It's like, yes. Yeah, penguins are cool. Penguins are cool. Which is your favourite kind of penguin? Um, oh, the emperor penguin. 
Okay. I'm all about. I like the I like the ones with the yellow feathers up sort of around. Oh, yeah. And they, like, give each other rocks and stuff. What are they called? Are they rock penguins? I can't remember. I think I think they're called rock hopper penguins. Yeah. But penguins are just awesome. All the penguins are cool. I just like emperor penguins because they're the biggest and they're, like, the burliest yeah, and they absolutely. look the coolest. Um, and they scream at each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great thing. God's creations are just amazing and incredible and i can't wait you know because it says that we'll see lions in heaven so i can't wait to see like glorified penguins in heaven right now this is andrea crouch with it's not just a story story sounded like music in my beautiful story of jesus Spelled my doubts and all my fears. How marvelous is his love brought to me from above. Oh, it's not just a story, but reality. This world is longing to know Wonderful story of Jesus I'll take it wherever I go Tell of his love For this world To save every man Woman, boy, and girl Oh, it's not just a story Oh, it's not just a story Oh, that plain and simple story Became real to me Welcome back, guys. That was Andre Crouch with It's Not Just a Story. You're listening to Faith FM. We are about to have another clue for the quiz, and Lawson is about to give it to us. Okay, next clue for the quiz. Who am I? I was 930 years old when I died. Uh, Okay. (laughs) All right. Give me that first clue again. In Hosea 6, the Lord says that Judah and Ephraim are like I was because they broke the covenant. Oh, and Lyle's correct. There you go. So, no no double prizes. Not too many people live to 930, so it sort of narrows down a little bit. (laughs) All right. So, all right. What have we got coming up in today's uh, more serious stories? Okay, screen times. We we, we bang on about this um, quite a bit. This is not the first time we have covered this subject, but this is a um, a new story just breaking, um, and I do believe it will be on Four Corners this evening. Ooh. Uh, basically, what they're saying is that the amount of screen time that is uh, being allowed for kids right now is that we are creating a generation of unemployable young people. Oh, yeah. I fully agree. And... 
researchers are actually concerned that there in the future there will be more jobs available than there are people available to fill those jobs and that we are facing a massive dumbing down of society. Um, and so rates of illiteracy are skyrocketing, rocketing, um, concentration spans are plummeting, and kids are just turning up to 90% increase in kids turning up to class exhausted mm. because of screens. Mm. Um, so, yeah, education experts are um, definitely concerned about this, uh, particularly over just the last three years. Um, in the age bracket of 12 to 13, 30% of, on average, this is an average, 30% of awake time, of the time that children spend awake when they are 12 to 13, is, is, is in front of a screen. Mm. So 30% of the time that they are awake is in front of It's just hard to even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one of these little things on my phone tells me how much screen time I did during the week and it's usually about two hours which I've been trying to get underneath the one hour a week yeah that's decent that's really good is that I, I thought specific, it was excessive is that is that for a specific app or is that for your entire phone that's for the entire phone cool okay there you go um, but my aim is to get it under an hour okay um. Okay, so basically, uh, screen kids have um, when they arrive in school, they have several. I want you to think about this: several thousand less words in their vocabulary, hmm. and so they're unable to communicate effectively because they just don't have a big enough vocabulary to be mm-hmm. able to communicate effectively and to being underst- and to be able to understand what is actually being spoken to them. Hmm. So this is this is preschool and kindy kids when they are arriving are are several thousand words behind already. Wow, this is pretty serious stuff. Um, and yet yeah, the the, the Gonski study study that just came out of um, research from that's been garnered from over one thousand teachers. One of the things that they've noticed in the classroom that has become common is um, browsing for porn and catfishing. In the classroom. Yeah. Um, and the last three years have shown a sharp increase in psychological, social, and behavioral difficulties. Now, screens have been around for a very, very long time, mm-hmm. but it just seems that we are losing the battle on screens and controlling those screens for our children. Um, and screens are becoming, you know, substitute parents. We have, um, we, we just go the easy route with parenting, hand the kids a screen, mm-hmm. hand them an iPad. And you're now getting kids that are coming to school that have had an iPad or a screen in their hands pretty much since they've been able to hold one. Mm. And they really don't know any other kind of life other than, you know, those screens. And so, yeah, major, major issues right there. Um, And what they're finding is that um, it's creating a bit of a vicious cycle where you have low socioeconomic parents... Mm-hmm. Um, who, who are um, are the ones who are most likely to give their children extended or extreme screen time, mm-hmm. and so you've got parents who are, you know, modelling a low socioeconomic environment to their children. So children are growing up with low self expectations to begin with because they yeah. gain their expectations from their parents, um, combined with uh, they're getting a double hit. 
basically, mm. combined with excessive screen time. Whereas the higher socioeconomic uh, environment, yeah, it tends to tends to uh, focus more on you know mm. sports and education and those kind of things. Yeah, and I I just got to say, like, one of the biggest things when it comes to you know because it's saying they're un- unemployable, and that and it's like oh because they're putting so much time into screens. I I because I, I've just fully had the experience where you have such a warped sense of you have such a warped sense of priorities Mm. like it's like oh what should i be doing with my time you know there like there are so much things so many things you could be doing um that would you know improve your life and not waste your time but instead you're spending all that time on screens and so like at that age where there isn't that especially when there isn't that policing and you're playing something like a video game that is designed to make the video game feel important to you and take priority in your life. Um, like, yeah, your schoolwork and all that focus is just going to go by the wayside. Um, I, like, man, I was fully lucky growing up because I can see, I guess, my... Yeah, well, I want to I jump in on that one for a moment because yeah. I just want to highlight the difference between riding a motorbike on a screen and riding a motorbike around a track. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so there's a vast difference there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And what, what they're actually noticing now is that because kids have the screen from birth, basically, yeah, they've created kids who are consumers of ent- entertainment, not creators of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they ride a motorbike around on a digital track mm-hmm. on a screen and they are just not motivated to go and ride one on a real track yeah, or ride one in their backyard or ride one up the bush. There's no motivation to do exactly. any of these yeah. kinds of things. And and it's like, oh, why don't you go outside and do something? Nah, I'll just, you know, why don't you go yeah. and play on a dirt bike outside? Nah, I'll just play it, play it here on the screen. Exactly. It was actually, um, I, I had some experience with uh, the, you know, a little bit with Qatar, you know, the, the nation, the country of Qatar, you know, there's really filthy rich people in the Middle East because um, they have lots of money for oil. And they, so there's a track in Qatar where they run around the the world championship, like motorcycle, you know, the MotoGP. And um, they have been trying for the last, because they've had around there for the last 15 years. And they've been trying for the last 15 years. They have Qatari development teams and blah, blah, blah. But because of that, because of that, uh, you know, that, that idea, they're just in such... High, they have such high levels of wealth. They have such lo- high levels of wealth, and there's such low motivation there because of literally because of screens, because of like, yeah, um, they can't get anything going with the youth who are in Qatar, like because screens have destroyed because, their young people. Uh, yeah, versus for example, Malaysia. You know, there's like Malaysia is a completely different uh, opposite thing where they have like a big company there, Patronus, that has all these development teams and they have constant Malaysian riders coming through because there's so much motivation there to be the best because they don't have that issue. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, much, yeah, in a different situation. Yeah. And so basically what they're saying is that, is, that, is that screen kids have no no motivation to try. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they're passive and when they're pro- when they are uh, posed a problem in the classroom, what they do, their response is to wait for the answer. Mm. Rather than to try and figure it out, they wait for the answer because everything is always given to you on the screen. All of the answers are automatically given to you. Um, they have noticed that the average student in Australia now is one year behind. I mean, why do you think about that for a moment? The average student is a year behind <laughs> where they used to be 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> okay. That's massive. That's huge. And that's being driven by screens. Um, and this is NAPLAN figures that are coming out. NAPLAN figures. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, and, and most most ch- children are finding it difficult to read. Now, when I was a kid in primary school, I was a voracious reader. 
I was reading, you know, multiple books. You know, if I, I'd, I'd probably read maybe 20 or 30 books a year wow. when I was in primary school. Mm. Um, and that wasn't incredibly uncommon. Mm. There were certainly students who led, read, read less than what I did, but it wasn't incredibly uncommon to, for, for kids to read like that. Now, reading a book per year has become rare. Mm. And being able to understand and grasp what that book says is even rarer. Uh, Victoria and Western Australia have already made uh, uh, mandatory phone bans in schools coming into effect next year. Um, and, of course, they're hoping that the rest of Australia will follow suit. Um, you know, that's definitely a step in the right direction. Mm. Now, here's something interesting. 30% of Year 3 students excel, okay, because the, they have the different levels and they're, like, they're finding that 30% of Year 3 students excel. Mm. But by the time you get through to Year 9, because this is the age bracket in which the screens are really hitting hard, only 4.5% are excelling. Mm. So if you've got 30% of Year 3 students that are excelling, theoretically you should have the same percentage in Year 9. Mm. But basically, it's not happening. Um, and 20%, cop this, 20% of Year 9 students are failing. Mm. Um, and it reminds me of a movie that came out in uh, 2006 called um, Idiocracy. Uh, I don't know whether anyone's ever heard of it, but uh, basically, uh, if you look at the, uh, the, the the ad on the front of it, you know, you've got, you've got your... Um, um, I've got the name of that guy, but Michelangelo. Yeah, yeah the Michelangelo guy, and but the guy's holding a PlayStation, a remote, and a beer. And the <laughs> idea behind it is that um, <clears throat> wealthy people underpopulate, and and we know that that's that's always been the case. They have much smaller families. Poorer people with low expectations have larger families. And you've got these poor people. You've got these two people that were incredibly dumb and somehow got cryogenically frozen for science. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get brought back, you know, X amount of years later, by which time the world has dumbed itself down to the point that they're actual geniuses. And so it's a comedy. But we find that art, reality follows art. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what we are seeing. We are actually seeing reality wow. following art um, in this situation right here. Uh, Gonski recommendations are that a, uh, if, you've got, if you've got children, they need to read at least one book per month for pleasure. Mm. Not for school, not because they have to, but just for pleasure. Mm. They need to write one letter per week to a loved one. Wow. Um, and they need to have no screens after school and that parents need to be a role model in that. Mm. That's to have a healthy, happy child. If you want your children to be healthy, if you want them to be happy, this is what the government is saying. This is something that we have been pushing here at Faith FM for a very, very long time, and this is a major report that is coming out, um, and it's got some really, really start. You know, and as they point out, we are in the middle of we are living a social experiment. Yeah. Um, right now because it's not something that you can sort of, you know, I know as a parent myself it was something that was sort of hit with and, and just happened, whereas if I had my parenting time over again, I would do it very differently. I wouldn't give my children um, smartphones until they turned 18. Mm. I'd give them a dumb phone. I, I can make phone calls on a dumb phone. I can keep <laughs> in contact with them. Anyway, we need to move on with the show. This is Carly Fletcher and Sandra Enderman. Do you really know me? A picture that's been marred, distorted, and defaced. 
To Faith FM, positively different radio. Are you looking for a way to turn your life experience into an enriching gift for helping those around you? A counselling degree at Avondale College of Higher Education could provide you a great foundation to assist others through life's difficulties. 
study in a personalised environment alongside a fantastic support network and community on our Lake Macquarie campus. Apply to study counselling today at counselling.avondale.edu.au. It's higher education designed for life. I have uh, on the phone with me this morning uh, Dr. Taz Walker. Dr. Uh, Walker, welcome to the show. G'day, g'day. How you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks, good Taz. Th- it's really good to be here and it's a beautiful day up here in Brisbane. Ah, very, very Ooh, nice. We, um, we all wish we were in Brisbane right now, but it's not so bad here in Newcastle either, so that's, um, that's all great. Now, Taz, um, I wanted to talk to you this morning about uh, uh, stromatolites. I'll try and get the pronunciation there correct. And the reason being that uh, a couple of weeks ago we had some a story that broke in the news about uh, stromatolites in Greenland and, you know, this discussion about whether, you know, the world is, uh, life on Earth is 200 million years older than what we thought it was before. But um, I thought that, you know, here's here's a story about rocks and so I need to talk to a geologist to get some background on this. And uh, Dr. Taz Walker, you're a geologist. So let's let's begin by just talking about uh, stromatolites. Um, What do they look like? What, What are they? Uh, well, stromatolites, they're a, um, in, a, in a rock layer, if you have a cutting, so you're looking at rocks or they're exposed at the surface, they are basically, they're a, a layer, a, a, an area of layered rocks, a small area uh, in, in these sediments, and they uh, look like, um, well, they look like mushrooms or they look like tiny little bushes, uh, but they're made, of, uh, they're made of layers of sediment. So they can, um, that's what they look like in the rocks. And uh, what geologists have done is that they've looked at these and they've tried to compare them with something which is alive today. And so the things that they've found are these, uh, uh, they call them modern stromatolites. They're uh, bacterial uh, little structures and you find them in Shark Bay in West Australia, living in there, and in some of the lakes in Western Australia. There's one of the lakes on the way to Geraldton, somewhere between Perth and Geraldton, where you find uh, these uh, these living things there. And so what happens is geologists say that these patterns in the rocks must be uh, uh, caused by these, you know, things which were alive uh, in on the Earth uh, billions of years ago. Uh, but that's really quite a big jump. Okay, so that's based on the principle of they kind of look the same or kind of look similar, therefore they are. Kind of, but uh, it's very hard to actually get them to, to look at them because they're in a rock and it's very hard to uh, look at the three-dimensional shape of them. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, imagination which has to go into to be able to, to decide what they are in the rocks, and that's why there's so much controversy over them. Sure, sure. Now, if we wanted to look at the uh, the ancient ones, the ones that are actually in the rocks, because you mentioned a number of locations there in Australia where we can see living ones right now. If we wanted to look at ancient ones in the rocks, where would we where would we go to see those? Say here in Australia. Um, oh, oh, numbers of places. Basically, you find them uh, up around Mount Isa. There's lots of rocks there which are Precambrian rocks. You find them most uh, mostly in Precambrian rocks, but not always. You also find them up in the Pilbara area of Western Australia. So um, there's, there's a number of places where these are found. And uh, because these rocks are very, very old, uh, they become important or significant or famous 
because uh, geologists will interpret these as being caused by these bacteria. And so then they say, well, this shows that life was on Earth billions of years ago. And it all, it's all uh, uh, a supposition based on supposition based on supposition. Sure, sure. Now, um, you know, it's been pointed out that some of them appear to be biological and others abiotic, which is non-biological. Um, how, do they, how do scientists tell the difference between a uh, stromatolite that is um, supposedly biological and one that is non-biological? In other words, it wasn't life. Well, um, well in, in actual fact, when you read, read about, you know, about them, they say that's the great puzzle that scientists are doing is how to tell the difference between them because... Uh, they, they, it's just, it's so hard to, when you look at the rocks to be able to, um, find reliable ways to, dis- to distinguish between biologically formed ones and abiotic ones. And, uh, it's an active research in modern geology. And, uh, so much hinges on it as far as the claims that are made as to whether they're biological or whether they are actually, uh, not a biological, and uh, and and yet it's such an area of um, uh, that's uncertain. It's such an uncertain area, and uh, so it's amazing these big claims could be made on stuff which is so flimsy. Sure, and of course we've got this storm of controversy, which is some big claims coming out of uh, stromatolites in Greenland, where Dr. Alan Nutman from the University of Wollongong. Um, has reported that that his discoveries there have pushed the evidence of life on Earth back by 200 million years, supposedly, um, which would have been life appearing on Earth just after it was formed. Would you agree that life came into existence just after the Earth was formed? Uh, no, I don't, actually, um, because uh, it's a, it depends on the way the, the rocks are interpreted. So these are found in uh, Precambrian rocks, but actually in Archean rocks. And uh, these are uh, um, assigned an age by people who believe they've got a certain way of looking at the world and they believe that things happen slowly and gradually and they do not believe that there was ever a global flood. And so they have a, a very, a very um, particular way of looking at the world and based on that way, and, and, and it's a very widespread belief within the geological circles, they uh, interpret it as this uh, being billions of years old. But in actual fact, um, you can look at the rocks and they make a lot of sense because it was formed not slowly and gradually, but by a global catastrophe uh, where the whole world was uh, inundated by water and crustal movements and destroyed. And it's recorded in history uh, as the, the flood uh, of Noah's time. The global catastrophe, and when you look at it that way, these stromatolites or, or the uh, these the structures formed very very early in the Noah's flood. Mm, okay, yep, yep. So early on in the time of the flood. So, um, so what would the advantages of the flood model be compared to the evolutionary model in studying stromatolites? Well, I think the uh, the flood model does explain why we find so much sediment around and, fi- and why we find so much um, volcanic material uh, around in that area. And also it explains why we find so much movement of the Earth's crust. So the flood model really gives a different perspective. There's certain areas where it's very, very powerful. And if you look at the other end of the scale into the landscapes 
and uh, the uh, on the Earth. Uh, it's very, very powerful. You can see the evidence of the flood when you fly around uh, and and look at areas which are not vegetated. You can you can see amazing evidence for the flood. But back in uh, this particular one, there are layers. That they're found um, in layers which have got uh, evidence of great catastrophe. Uh, some of them, uh, there's areas of um, uh, there's, there's mudstone and that sort of thing, which it doesn't indicate catastrophe. But there's also uh, conglomerate, large-scale conglomerates in the same area, which points to very, very rapid processes, huge catastrophic processes. And it talks to rocks buckling under great pressure. So that was part of the research as well. And so the Noah's flood explains why we find such a huge catastrophe uh, covering such a large area over these these um, uh, these uh, these uh, sediments and areas. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, if we look at uh, Dr. Um, Alan Nutman's theories, uh, who's from the University of Wollongong, he's he's claiming that you know this pushes the evidence of life on Earth back by 200 million years. Does this mean that our textbooks are going to need to... If that's accepted, we're going to have to rewrite our textbooks again? Of course. So the textbooks are based on the so-called evolutionary worldview, the evolutionary way of looking at things. And so that they constantly change in so many areas as new facts are discovered or new ideas are put forward. And so... The, the, the textbooks don't change as rapidly as you think. Uh, the ideas change, but the textbooks sometimes take decades to catch up to to things. And particularly as far as proofs of evolution is concerned, the textbooks will hold on to things which are wrong, which are uh, which have been shown to be incorrect. They'll hold on to them uh, with it because they are so uh, so good at convincing students that evolution is true. So there's a lot of things in the textbook that even uh, uh, paleontologists, scientists and geologists uh, acknowledge are not true, and uh, yet they're still being taught. Yeah, and I'm sort of thinking of you know how much the textbooks have uh, have changed in some areas where they should have changed since you know you and I were in school. And oh, absolutely! It, it, it just sort of yeah. sometimes I wonder whether or not evolution, the theory of evolution, is pushed forward by publishers who make tons of money every time they get to re-release, you know, a, a slightly edited textbook that they then have to force all the students to, you know, cough up huge amounts of money <laughs> for. Like it's really one. like snowballing their business, isn't it? It's keeping them in business. This constant changing face of evolution that they have. Yeah, well, textbooks are a great industry because you've got new students every year and, mm-hmm. and they've all got to go and buy the books and the books are, not, you know, they're usually quite thick books and so, yeah, so it is a great business. And uh, But a lot of the stuff, they don't usually put in a lot of new material uh, because, but they just reshuffle what they've done into, into different arrangements, slightly different pictures and that sort of thing as far as textbooks go. I mean, this is a this this is a rather large um, discussion that they're having right now because, you know, when you when you think about it, you know, the, the the dates are presented with with such absolute confidence in so many of our textbooks and lectures and presentations and so forth, and uh, and and here they've got found them to be out by you know only only two hundred million years or so. I mean, it's like seriously, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Two hundred million years. It's uh, uh, they they changed the date by two hundred million years, and that's. Like this is uh, this is um, not not unusual. Uh, with the organisation that I'm with, with Creation Ministries, we publish research papers and research reports, 
and it's constantly the dates, uh, so-called uh, dates of fossils are being changed by those sorts of values, 200 million years, 100 million years, 50 million years, and those sorts of things. The first appearances of, of uh, things like um, ducks or crocodiles or, you know, various, various uh, shells and things like that. See, the thing is, the fossils that we find in the rocks, and uh, they, are, they are interpreted as evolution over millions of years, but it makes more sense that they're actually buried rapidly, uh, and it was, it's actually a record of burial during Noah's flood. So before Noah's flood, all these animals were alive on the earth, just like they're alive after the flood, and we see them today. They were alive beforehand, and that whole biosphere was ripped up and it was uh, buried and it was a process that took something like um, something like six months to bury most of the stuff and then in the next seven months uh, the water which covered all the earth all the continents uh, it drained off the continents and causing uh, great erosion and uh, ero- and uh, shaping the landscapes. So that's um, the, the way that the, the Noah's flood describes things is a very powerful way. Yeah, absolutely. I should just mention very quickly that uh, Dr. Taz Walker is from uh, Creation Ministries International, which is just an outstanding ministry um, looking at uh, you know the flood and creation from a scientific perspective, and we'll get um, some links to that up on our social medias um, as soon as this um, interview is over. But um, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, now of I, course I had a look at the reports. There's a ABC report about this finding in Greenland, and they actually yes. had some photographs of the area, which is very interesting. And they had some photographs of the rock, and they actually got a little arrow coming to everything, and they say a stromatolite <laughs> pointing to it. But you know, it looks to me, uh, and I haven't been to the area, of course, but just from that photograph, it looks to me like what you would call soft sediment deformation, where the overlying sediment uh, is soft and the underlying sediment was soft at the time, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it sunk into the underlying sediment and it forms what's called flame structures, and these flame structures have been interpreted as stromatolite. And uh, so these shapes can be formed by, just by uh, movements, you know, if the sediment's soft, and uh, it's, uh, it's got water in it, still got water in it, so it's been laid down very rapidly and still got water in it. And as the, as the sediments dewater, it produces these uh, lamination shapes in the sediment. And uh, these are then interpreted as stromatolites when in actual fact they're not. It's just a feature of the very rapid deposition of the sediment. Yeah, and, and for, that's, uh, for a uh, for a layperson like myself, I go to a national park. I read a plaque there somewhere and says, "Oh, these mm. are stromatolites. This is the oldest life form on Earth." And you know, the natural assumption for someone like myself is, "Oh, they've dug into the stromatolite and they've found you know uh, biological material, or they've found you know life forms there." But what you're saying is, they're just rocks, and because they look like something that we have today, then they have decided that this is the oldest life form. But there's not actually any evidence of life within that actual rock formation. Mostly they're interpreted based on the shape, the shape uh, of these things in the rock. So they've got a certain shape. And based on that, they interpret it as stromatolites. And then they might look at some to see if they can find evidence of bacteria in them. And sometimes they find little, you know, little round things in there and they'll say, oh, we found evidence of bacteria. 
but that's often very controversial too. They could, the, the others, other uh, geologists will claim that these are not bacteria, but they are actually little um, uh, little minerals that are formed in those sediments, and uh, they've been wrongly interpreted. So it's a it's an area of great controversy. Uh, these stromatolites, and yet so much in the evolutionary story hinges on it. The first life on Earth. That's what you know they're talking about, but it's not. It was uh, the, the first life on Earth was before all these sediments were deposited uh, in the pre-flood world uh, during the Creation Week. Dr. Taz Walker, thank you so much for joining us. We are out of time, but it's fascinating to talk about uh, stromatolites this morning and what they tell us. And it just reminds me that when I'm reading a plaque in a national park, a plaque in a national park somewhere that. Uh, Yes, sometimes these things are based on flimsy evidence. Right now, we are going to be moving right along with Carter and Carter, something bigger than you and I. Who made the mountain? Who made the tree?
somebody bigger than you.